morning. It is good to be with you all, and uh, what another full gospel-filled ser- uh, service, just hearing rich testimonies of God's grace, and then singing uh, wonderful songs filled with the hope that is ours in Christ, and how He has redeemed us, He has paid the debt for us, He has rescued us, He is the promise, He is our hope, and He is all in all. And that's what I hope that we will see, even as we come to this text this morning. It's actually a fitting text, I think, for us today as we endure uh, through a difficult season, aren't we? This is a difficult year. Um, I think it's safe to say that 2020 uh, is going to go down in infamy, don't you think, Uh, is the worst, right? We'll just label it that. In fact, uh, we even make side comments when anything goes bad or a little off. We say, well, it's 2020, right? Uh, someone actually said that to me right before the service. Um, it has now just become part of the lingo. Uh, some of you young ones will be telling your kids about 2020 and how awful it was and that they have no idea what torture you went through as a young child. Something like that. You'll use it in that way. Well, as we endure these things, I I do think, though, uh, even as we call it 2020 in disparagement, that perhaps even amongst us, and and I'm not just including us in this room, just thinking us as humans, uh, I think we're developing some hope that magically at the end of 2020, this is all going away. Right? Isn't there something in that? It's 2020. Let's get to 2021. When can it come? Uh, and we hope that the nightmare may be magically over. Well, I don't want to be Debbie Downer today. Uh, and I certainly hope that that's true, that the Lord in his kindness, we're praying, would put an end to uh, all these things that we're experiencing. But the truth is, is that this year has brought us face to face with the reality that we as sinful human beings tried desperately to suppress, tried desperately to deny. And that reality is that this world is passing away. We just sang, this world is vanishing. Give me Jesus. That's a reality that is actually hopeful for us in Christ, but is a reality nonetheless that many want to ignore We have been forced to deal with the reality that we live in a sin-cursed world and that absolutely nothing, no one can escape its prying tentacles, right? It touches everything. As I was preparing for the sermon, my mind went to Solomon If you're familiar in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that he has seen it all. He says, in fact, that there is nothing new under the sun. And he says, behold, it's all vanity. It's like striving after or grasping wind. You you just can't hold on to it. He says, even the, the crooked things you cannot make straight, and what is lacking you cannot count. He says, at the end of the day, all there is is to fear God and keep his commandments. So the question that I want to ask you this morning is, where do we go? Where do we go to find refuge in this fallen world? What do we do or what do we give ourselves to that will have lasting value, lasting investments? Where where do we run to escape the flood of judgment 
just coming upon the earth. You do realize that every time that we experience such things like this, it's just a taste, it's a, it's a foreshadow, it's a, a looking forward to the final judgment and maybe a microcosm, if you will. And so it's reminding us, these are signposts that this world is vanishing. And where I want to uh, offer to you this morning is that we must find safe haven where death cannot prevail. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Where do we go? We go to the place where death cannot prevail. And here in our passage, Jesus says such a place exists. In fact, it's a place that he is building. It's a thing he is building, and it is the church. Jesus says here in verse 17, or in verse 18, he says, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is the only institution, it is the only thing on this earth that Jesus says death will not prevail against. Do you realize that? What's the church? Well, if we think about it from uh, the, the whole of Scripture, we learn that the church is the body of Christ made up of all the redeemed who have been purchased by his blood on the cross. The church is called the household of God, and being, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as its chief cornerstone. The church has been united to Christ by faith and is being built up into a holy temple in the Lord. And what are temples? That is the dwelling place of God where his spirit resides. The church is where we come to Christ who is said to be a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God is choice and precious. And through faith in him, we too are said to be living stones. What a beautiful picture. As we gather together, the picture is that we are living stones being built on this foundation, which Christ is the chief cornerstone we're being built up into a, a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That's what the church is. And so with the coming of Christ, and as we've been reading in the gospel of Matthew and been diving into this gospel now for nearly two years, God, what is he doing? But we're finding out God's work is culminating in establishing this church. In fact, he likens it to being laying down a stone in Zion, chief cornerstone, chosen and precious. Isaiah says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, but he who stumbles over this stone will be crushed by it. Brothers and sisters, 2020 is not a time to flee from the church. 2020 is a time to flee to the church. It's a time to go rest upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that precious cornerstone which is promised to withstand the rain, the flood, and the storm. It's no coincidence that Jesus says, build your life upon the rock, and then he comes here and he says, and upon this rock, I'm building my church. There's a connection to be made, but yet I think many people think, no, there's other places for safe haven. 
There's other things that are going to last. There's other things that are of value and of worth. And then Christ tells us actually the only thing that has been promised to be blessed by God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I trust that you do. You're here. <laughs> you believe that. You gather. And so this morning, what I want to do, I want to encourage us all the more. Those of you online, I want to encourage you all the more to grasp the indispensable nature of the church for the eternal well-being of your souls. The church is indispensable for your soul, for its well-being, for its security. And to see that, we're going to examine four pillars upon which Christ is building his church and upon which his church will stand and it will last forever and ever. This first pillar, I think we'll have it up on the screen, is that the church is built upon the confession of Christ. Our passage begins with Jesus asking the disciples a question. It's a good question. He says, who do people say that I am? You see that in verse 13? And the disciples reply with um, various answers. They said, well, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Uh, if you remember in, in Matthew chapter 14, that's what Herod thought, right? He'd killed, he'd beheaded John the Baptist. Now he's hearing these works being done by Jesus, and he, he comes to the conclusion, John the Baptist is resurrected from the dead, is reincarnate. The disciples said, but others are looking at what you're doing, and, and they, they think that you're Elijah. And this makes sense because in Malachi 4, 5, it says that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah will and so people are, are saying, this is a prophet like Elijah. There are others who said, no, 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 he, he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And likelihood is, is that they liken him to Jeremiah because he was pronouncing judgment upon many cities. In chapter 11, he, he, he pronounces woe, woes against various cities. And he says, if what has occurred in your city would occur in Sodom and Gomorrah, that city would remain unto this day. If you know anything about Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, they were all about judgment. <laughs> and so some have likened him to Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, if we were to ask that question in our day, there would be various answers, I think, as well. Maybe not exactly the same as these, but people may say, well, Jesus was a, a, a good teacher, people might say. Others might even think he's a prophet. In fact, Islam would say Jesus is a prophet. But even though there seems to be a positive view, I think generally speaking, people have a positive view about who Jesus is. Just as in Jesus' day, most do not recognize him for who he truly is. They're blind to the reality of who Jesus is. And so Jesus turns the question, and he makes it more specific. He turns to the disciples in verse 15, and he turns to you and me, and he says, who do you say that I am? Not just what everybody else is talking about, not what popular opinion is, but who do you say that I am? And what we see here is that how you answer that question will reveal if you know him or not. You truly know him. And in verse 16, we get the right answer. This is, 
been almost building up the entire gospel, if you will. If if you've been with us, Jesus has been doing remarkable things over and over. And it began with, with God from heaven at his baptism saying, this is my beloved son. And, and some people think, what, did we hear something? Was that thunder? They, they can't discern what that is. When Jesus casts out demons, it seems that they're the only ones who rightly understand who he is. They say, why have you come to torture us, you son of God? You're the holy one, right? It seems that only blind people can actually see who he is. When Jesus heals blind ones, they, they say, have mercy on me, son of David. But now, for the first time, we get the most clear expression from the disciples' lips. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does it mean to confess this about Jesus? Is this who you think Jesus is? Would you have said you're the Christ, the son of the living God? And, and maybe as you hear that, I say, okay, Yes, but I don't really know what that means. Well, to confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ is to express with your mouth the heartbeat of your heart that you believe Jesus is king. Brothers and sisters, this is a political statement, by the way. This is what ends up actually being the technicality by which Christ is crucified, right? What do the Jews end up saying? We have no king but Caesar. He's not our king. And to accept him as your king, say, no, he's my king, well, might put you on the cross as well, right? This is a political statement. It's a statement by which Psalm 2 tells us that the nations rage and they gather and they seek to make war. This is why Herod at the beginning of this gospel is so torn up and he tries to kill all the children who are uh, are newborn boys who are two years and younger. Why? Because he heard the king of the Jews has been born. This is why Satan incites Judas to betray Jesus. Because he wants to defeat him. Why? Because he is the rightful ruler over all the earth. And so what are we doing, brothers and sisters, when we share this confession? What are we saying when we say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We are claiming you are king and we have no other. That's what we're saying. And so when we gather together on the Lord's day, this is a statement. We are claiming that he is the one true king. He is the one who's been appointed by the living God. See, the church is the citizenship of the kingdom to come. We are the citizens of the age to come, the new world, the new heavens, and the new earth. And when we gather on a Lord's Day, we are proclaiming to all who drive by, all who see us, who watch us pull out of our driveway in the morning, and they know they are claiming Jesus as their king. That's what you're saying when you gather on the Lord's Day. We're telling each other what we believe about Jesus as well. We're communicating to our children who we believe is the king and the ruler of our life. 
You have that conversation with your kids, especially if you've got kids and they're young. You ever had it happen? You say, hey, tomorrow we have church. And they all just say, yes, right? You know, the younger they are, the more honest they are. I don't want to go to church. You know, we hear that. Not from these, but some of the younger ones in my family. And you know what we tell them? We say, we go to church because we worship Jesus. He's our king. He died on the cross for our sins. He redeemed us. He purchased us. We owe him our lives. We owe him our thanks. Maybe you say it a different way to the younger ages, but you, you, you communicate that. You instill that in them. So they never grow up saying, yeah, actually, church was only kind of when everything was going great, when it was easy. Now, I want my kids to say, and we were always at church because my parents believe Jesus is the king. It's what we want for our kids. It's what we want for us, and that's what we are communicating to one another when we gather. And by gathering, guess what we do? What we've been singing, and I, I look at us, it is, it is always encouraging. It fans into flame, a boldness, doesn't it? We sing, we see, we see others singing, and we, we catch a glimpse of them consumed with the, the praises of God, and, and it sweeps us up, doesn't it? Sweeps us up. It's something that you cannot do if you aren't here, right? You aren't swept up with the praises of God's people. You're often swept up with other things, right? So back at, back, gathering together, we fan into flame that confession within each of our hearts. It's a commitment of renewal. I was on our way here, and on, the, on my playlist, we have a little worship playlist, and I'm going to admit Kanye West's album came on, and uh, you know what he says? The strong start on Sunday. <laughs> and I was like, he's right. The strong start on Sunday. And that's where we are. That's where we gather our strength. That's where we find our faith. But we must also keep in mind that this confession that we make as we come back to our text is not something that you and I have done on our own. It doesn't originate in us. In fact, as Jesus is going to go on to tell Peter, our confession actually is a result. It is an expression of the work of God in our hearts, whereby God opens up our eyes to see and opens up our ears to hear and behold the glory of the Son. And so for this reason, the church is built on the revelation of Christ. And so you see this. Upon making the confession of Christ, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Peter, Simon Peter, or Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, when we talk about being blessed, how do we usually use that phrase? What are we usually referring to? Things are going well, right? I've been so blessed. And I think that's a right way. We should always give honor and thanks to God for all the good things that he has given us. But typically, we think being blessed is material possession, success in this life, all, all these things. I have been blessed beyond all measure. But when we come to the gospel, it never is talking about that. It's never talking about that's what it means to be blessed. In fact, throughout the gospel, Jesus' teaching began with blessings. We, we know of them as the Beatitudes, right? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. In fact, all those Beatitudes really are just reiterating one great blessing that if you are in Christ, you are truly blessed and you are a citizen of the kingdom. Jesus also talks about being blessed in, in Matthew chapter 11. You can maybe mark your, your finger there. But in Matthew eleven six, 6, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There is a blessing from heaven that when you are presented with who Jesus is, you're presented with his word, that your heart doesn't rebel against it. You aren't offended. You don't stumble over the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus has his disciples after, after he's begun to, to tell about the parables of the kingdom. And Jesus says, blessed are you... Because you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. Eyes to see and ears to hear what? The mysteries of the kingdom. Blessed are you because this blessing isn't bestowed upon everyone. And so here in Matthew 16, the same idea is being reiterated, but it's, it's coming into laser focus. What is the blessing by which all blessings flow, if you will? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this. What's this? That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Your own humanity did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? All the blessings of the kingdom come down to this. Have you been blessed to see who Jesus truly is? That's where it all comes down to. And when you see who Jesus truly is, actually, guess what? You see who yourself, who you truly are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Where does all that come from? And you are called sons of God, inheritors of the kingdom. It all comes by knowing him, right? It all comes by knowing him. And so if you recognize this, you see that the reason that you confess Christ is because our Father in heaven revealed him to you. By the Spirit, you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus truly is. This is what the scripture talks about is regeneration. Jesus in the John's gospel calls it being born again. You have a hard, stony heart. There's a rebellion to God, but that work of regeneration opens your heart, replaces it with a heart of flesh, and then you have eyes to see, ears to hear, new desires, new taste. Jesus is everything. Because you see him for who he truly is. And so this is not of your own doing, as Paul says, it is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. And so what do we do when we, when we understand? Nobody comes to church and says, man, I figured it out, right? You just heard all these testimonies. Did anybody say, you know what? The Lord was blessed to get me, right? 
No. I was lost. And he redeemed me. He saved me. I heard the gospel and he was kind to me. And you know deep down that there was a day you heard the gospel and you would hear nothing of it, but then there was a day you heard the gospel and it was everything to you. Jesus says, blessed are you. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is doing a work in you so that you may see me and you may believe. And so we can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Save a wretch like me, I once was blind, but now I see. So how do we know that Christ will build his church? Well, this actually makes it very clear. Christ's building project is going to succeed because God the Father is revealing the Son to whomever he wills. And when he reveals the Son, guess what? People come to the Son. People come and they confess him to be the Christ. I want you to see this. This has already been here. Go to chapter 11. And this is after Jesus has pronounced judgment upon several unrepentant cities. And this is just maybe a fuller expression of what is being acknowledged here in Peter's confession, but on the positive side of things. And if you look in chapter 11, verse 25... He's just pronounced judgment on several cities who have rejected him. And, and Jesus, at that time, declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why is he thanking them? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you see it that way? God's gracious will that you... We're not blinded from the reality of who Jesus is. He goes on, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's why you believe. That's why you confess. Because the Son and the Father, by their gracious will, sought to reveal themselves to you. And by what means does God do this? How does he do this? We've been seeing that it's always when Christ speaks. It's Christ's word. It's by the word of God that we can hear, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And so it is through the, the word that actually we, we grow in this grace and, and, and our eyes are opened. It's only by the word that we can, a word of Christ, that faith even is possible. And so that's what we gather here together. Lord, continue to show me Christ. I say this often the times. The way you see is hearing in the scriptures. You see by hearing. We behold Christ with our ears and we express our gratitude to him. And so when we gather every Lord's Day, why do we do that? We gather under the revelation of Christ, right? We want to hear his word. And, and it is by the proclamation of his word, the singing of his word, the saturation of his word, in all the elements of the service where his spirit presses that word deep into our hearts and then together we give thanks to him. 
That's why we close our service with a song of response, right? And so the church is built upon the confession of Christ. The church is built upon the revelation of Christ. But also, we see here, the church is built on the promise of Christ. And so after pronouncing this blessing upon Peter, the blessing of all blessings, Jesus further explains how he will be used to build the church. Now, this is interesting here. He goes on, he says, verse 18, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I want you to notice here, uh, many of your Bibles might have a little um, footnote where rock is, and it's signaling to you that there's a play on words going on. Peter in Greek is Petros. You can kind of hear Peter and rock. That means rock. It's the way you say the name, but Petra means rock, okay? So Jesus is making a, a play on words. Peter, which his name means rock, I'm going to build my church upon this rock, okay? So you should be correlating what Jesus is doing. Jesus is starting something here with Peter. And in fact, Jesus is, is, is kind of telling you, and telling Peter that he's this little pebble in the foundation that's being laid. I'm building a church, and what do you do? You, you start with the foundation. And guess what, Peter? You're, you're, you're the first rock. You're the, the first one to confess. You're, you're the first pebble. You're the first stone by which I'm laying this foundation, this spiritual house in which I'm going to be the cornerstone and and this whole edifice is going to be built upon. Peter was the leader of the 12 apostles. That's why he's always the one speaking. Um, he's the spokesman. He's the leader of this group. And, it's, and he serves a significant role, not only among this group, but if we know the history of the church and how it starts, Peter was instrumental to the birthing of the church. You think about Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost. When the Spirit pours down, who's preaching at Pentecost? Peter is. And on that day, 3,000 souls were added to their number, added to the church, spiritual stones being built upon the foundation, if you will. Think about Peter. He is the one in Acts chapter 10 who goes to Cornelius' house and brings the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's instrumental in bringing them into this spiritual house and this building. And so Peter plays an actually a unique and special role in salvation history, that Christ in his work of establishing a new people of God. But what I want you to understand here is that it was the gospel that Peter preached and believed whereby this spiritual house would be built. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, that is death, just a, a euphemism for death, will not be victorious over this building. What God is doing in Christ started with the apostles and, and has come all the way to us. But I want you to think about this. Peter was just the beginning. He's part of the foundation that's being laid. But Peter one day dies. But guess what remains? The church. And it continues to be built to this day. And what we learn from Christ's promise is, 
is that wherever the church is built upon the apostles and their confession, it will endure forever. Nothing will prevail against it. Nothing. This means that, brothers and sisters, even if our religious liberties become stripped away, if persecution were to break out, if Christianity were to become legal, even, let's suppose, there was a pestilence all over the earth. Can't prevail. That doesn't mean there isn't struggle. Doesn't mean you individually will prevail. In fact, it doesn't even mean that 1111 Allison Lane will prevail. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will, which we are a manifestation of. So long as we stand upon the rock, we hold fast to our confession and the revelation of Christ. Get this, brothers and sisters, the church, you, we are the citizenship of heaven, uh, the kingdom of the age to come. And so even those who die in the Lord, guess what? We're resurrected as he was. So that death, guess what? Does not have the final say. But if you build your life on anything else, it's sinking sand. When the storms, the rains, the floods come, whoosh, washed away. This is the promise that we encourage one another with every Lord's Day. This is why it's so imperative that we gather together. We need to be reminded that Christ is victorious and death will not prevail. It's depressing out there, right? We need to be given true hope that lasts forever. And that's what happens here as we gather. And so the church is built on the promise of Christ, but lastly, the church is built on the authority of Christ. And you see this in verse 19. Jesus continues to explain how the establishment of the church will come about. And he's starting with Peter. He's beginning with Peter. And he says to Peter... Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He starts off with a, a picture, keys. Most of us in our pocket, we got keys, right? Well, I got one, I about dropped it. But anyway, we got keys. And what do keys represent? Well, well. Depends on what key it is, but it represents maybe your house, your apartment, your car, your locker. Uh, the keys go to lots of things, but they, they unlock things and they lock things, right? And so they have a functional purpose, but they also have a representative purpose. Whoever holds the keys has authority to get in and get out, right? Has authority to lay claim to this item that it, it takes a key. Well, what we see here is that Jesus has the keys of the kingdom. Jesus has authority over the kingdom. Why? Well, we've already seen that. He's the Christ. He's the king. He has the keys to it. And so having keys to the kingdom, what, what is the imagery that he is, he is bringing upon us? Well, you can unlock the gate, and you can bring someone in, and you can lock the gate, and you can shut people out. And what is absolutely stunning here? Because then he says, I'm giving the keys to you, Peter. What? I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to you. 
Now, we might expect him to keep the metaphor of locking and unlocking that the key brings to our mind, but he switches metaphors. He, he moves from keys to binding and loosing. Do you see that? He says, whatever you bind and whatever you loose, Peter, will be bound or loosed in heaven. This imagery of binding and loosing, you kind of imagine someone being bound in chains, bound in rope or something. There, there, there's no freedom. Well, Jesus uses this same terminology at the end of chapter 18, or in the middle of it. And in this context, he's talking about what do you do when there's sin in the church? What do you do when someone sins against you? And we'll get there, so I'm not going to preach this text. But in verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, that's you plural, the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus talking about here? What we learn here is that the binding and loosing is in refers to those who are bound in their sins and those who are freed from their sins. This is the, the point that Jesus is making here in chapter 16 and we'll expound upon later in chapter 18. Jesus says, I have delegated responsibility to you to ensure the right people belong to the church according to the right confession. Does that make sense? In other words, everyone who makes this confession that you made, Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoever believes that, confesses that, you have the right to declare you have been loosed from your sins. Your sins have been forgiven. But whoever does not confess that he is the Christ, you say you're bound in your sins. You remain in your sins. So what does this look like? Such authority is actually a delegated authority. This doesn't reside in the pastor. This doesn't reside in us per se. It's a delegated authority given to the whole church. It's a delegated authority that, by which we have a responsibility by which we handle our affairs. And we show that we are under Christ's authority. So we think about church membership, which is represented in baptism and Lord's Supper. Those are practical ways by which we exercise the keys of the kingdom. Let me explain. There is a process by which you have to go through to be baptized, right? We, we just saw some of it. All these have been baptized. But it's the same process. You confess Christ. That's why we have, hear testimonies, so that you can hear these people that we're recommending to come into the church actually believe that Jesus is the Christ and he has died for their sins and they have put their faith and trust in him. And now we have the authority delegated by Christ to say, come in. But if someone does not profess Christ, well, we don't have that authority to say, yeah, come in. We can't do that, actually, we have to say, no, you're out. And that's where it'll get to in Matthew 18. But when we gather around the Lord's table, what do we do? We say, who is welcome at the table? We're fencing it. We're saying, only those who have trusted in faith in Christ and entered into his family are welcome at the table. But we want all of you here. But you must profess that Jesus is the Christ. Come through the waters of baptism declaring that. 
And so we're binding and loosing as Christ directed. We have a responsibility, get this, to affirm here on earth what heaven has already declared. That's the idea. It is not that what we do directs heaven. It's what heaven done is directed here on earth through us. This is the place where Christ's rule is being manifested. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the place where Christ's rule and authority is being manifested. And when we gather, we're saying, I'm under that rule. I'm under that rule. I'm going to declare to you, we heard three people do that, I want to join this body. And on December 13, I have full confidence based on these professions of faith that we will say, you are welcome into this body. But it also means, guess what? I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. I'm submitting under this authority. You're holding me accountable to it. And that can only happen when we see each other, right? It can only happen. The gathering actually holds us accountable to the confession that we claim to have made and demonstrated to the church. Do you understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here? the significance and importance of the church. Christ in his divine wisdom leads, protects, and provides for his sheep through his church that he's building. And he does that by holding us accountable to one another so that we will not drift away. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, and we'll close. You know this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, Christ's church is indispensable to the well-being of your soul. As Jesus says, do not fear that which can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell. And by gathering with his people, as you see the day drawing near, you're saying, you're the only king and I fear you above all. I revere you. And you, here in this place, this is where Christ is confessed, where he is revealed, where his promises are kept, and his authority is exercised. I want to be where Christ is. Because where Christ dwells, guess what? The judgment has already passed. Where Christ is, the fire has already burned. Where Christ is, death has already taken its toll. But if you are not where Christ is, it hasn't. And so if today you, you don't share that confession of Peter, which is the confession of all the redeemed throughout the history, do not delay, for the day is drawing near. And you aren't guaranteed tomorrow you aren't guaranteed the rest of today. Today is the day of salvation. Trust him while he is near, while he may be found. 
and you can be welcomed into the, to this body and join in this responsibility of being built up into a spiritual household where God dwells. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, thank you for blessing us. Thank you for opening up our eyes to behold and see wonderful things from your word. Specifically, Jesus, you have revealed yourself to us. And we love you where we once did not. We find refuge in you when we once sought refuge everywhere else. Lord, you have sought us when we were lost and now we are found. You have wrapped us up with robes of righteousness by which we can now come to the Father boldly proceed to the throne of grace. Lord, may we be encouraged today and may we continue to stir one another up to love and good deeds, to lay hold fast to the confession, to lay hold of your promises as we see the day drawing near. And we pray these things in the name above every name, Jesus Christ, 